Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. I'm very excited to announce that this week we are going to be releasing three episodes for your listening pleasure. I have quite a large backlog of shows uh, and recordings that I've done this fall, and I want to start releasing them in larger batches. So I have decided to release three this week. Also, I thought I'd mention as the year comes to an end, um, if you'd like to give a one-time gift to this show or make a reoccurring gift, you can visit our Patreon page, which is located at www.patreon.com slash fresnosbest. Um, it would be so appreciated by us. As much as I uh, wish it were true, it is not free to make, produce, and host a podcast, um, and we need your help to continue producing this show. Today, I will be speaking with Jessica Mast-Foss. Jessica is a rural Oklahoman Mennonite girl turned urban Fresno ecumenical woman. Jessica grew up in central Oklahoma and moved to Fresno at the age of 14 and fell in love with the town within weeks of her move. She graduated from Fresno Pacific University with a degree in biblical and religious studies um, and a minor in peacemaking and conflict studies. After graduating, Jessica went on to participate in the Pink House, came to love downtown Fresno specifically, and grew passionate for community development and exploring the intersection of faith and justice. She has since moved on from her work at the Pink House and has a lot of thoughts as she transitions from that intentional community. I know you will love this conversation. Let's go meet Jessica. Also, before we start, uh, bear with us during this episode. We were having some connectivity issues, and I've done my best to smooth them out, but there are a few moments of cyborg talk, uh, but they only last for a few seconds or so. Fresno's best. Uh, so, Jessica, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Yeah, so I have been a longtime uh, Lowell neighborhood and downtown resident, and so I have to go with Don Tacha, which is a little taco place right at McKenzie and Blackstone. It's like basically nestled in the neighborhood. You just have to take a little bit of a walk. So really, really good food. The asada is like grilled outside. Um, they're all outdoor seating, so it's been COVID safe the whole time. Um, they're just coming up on a five-year anniversary and it's just like, so I ate there, you know, yesterday and saw a friend that I was so excited to run into. It's like the good neighborhood spot to see all the people outside. Very tasty. Okay. And what do you order there? Uh, I always get the asada tacos. That's like, that's it. <laughs> okay. So what Pretty about standard. though, what about a restaurant outside of your neighborhood? Where would you, so the question really is, where would you travel to eat? Because we all have our neighborhood spots, right? But where in Fresno would you like get in a car to go? Mm-hmm. So I actually, I love going to Old Town Clovis to actually go like be alone and not run into people. Um, and I like going to eat at either one of the little rolled ice cream places. So two cities, that great rolled ice cream. You know, I can you explain rolled ice cream to me? I, I mean, I had it once and I maybe I just had a bad experience. Make the case to me why I should get that. Oh, you didn't uh, like it? 
Well, I, it was so long ago, it's hard to remember. I just never went back. And so just, I, I, I don't understand the technology. So ex- explain yeah. it to me. Why, why, do, you, why so, do you like it? Yeah. Well, I was interested in rolled ice cream because I first remember very vividly seeing this video on like, you know, Facebook video, Instagram video, whatever, uh, like years and years ago. And it was the first time I'd seen rolled ice cream. And I was like, oh my gosh, someday I have to eat that. So I think for me, there was a, there was a strong desire to eat the ice cream that fueled my love of it. But yeah, it's a really, really cold, like frozen, um, you know, platter that the kind of crunchy things on the ice cream go on. And then there's, I don't know if it's, you know, whatever the ice cream liquid kind of mixture is, but it gets frozen as it's going onto that little very cold platter and it gets all chopped up together and then rolled up. I just think it's a very like interesting treat. Uh, it makes me feel fancy while I eat it. So uh, that's why I'm, I'm pro rolled ice cream. Got it. I think the equivalent for me is gelato probably something oh, yeah. that's like, uh, you know, it makes you feel slightly uh, bougier. Although lately, lately I've been yes. dipping my baby toe into uh, cashew uh, ice cream, which, you know, okay. sound, I, I was skeptical at first, but there is this level of creaminess you can get with a cashew that I only thought that came from bovine sources, um, mm-hmm. but you can get it from a nut. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, ice mm-hmm. cream is is very important to me. Um, and I, you know, yeah. I should probably give rolled ice cream another try. I just, I don't know. Oh I, yeah, I, I resist trends initially. So maybe it's already like past yeah. that initial. It's the cool thing, and it's just a thing. So maybe I can go back. Yeah. Um, now, I think talking, it's just a thing. It's become neutral now, so you're safe. Good. You know, as uh, you know, we'll talk about hipsters in a minute, but you know, uh, the the thing you're not supposed to do is jump on the wave. You know, you let the wave. You know, like a surfer, you let the wave pass by, and then you say, "Oh, I would have caught that." Um, so, speaking of trends, um, we have a, a funny thing in common, which is that we both uh, chose to hyphenate our names. Um, now mine is actually not legally hyphenated and neither is my wife's name. Um, in, in large part because we're both incredibly lazy. Um, but on our Facebook (laughs) pages, it is hyphenated. Um, and I remember when I chose to do this, there was, uh, I would say a small amount of backlash in my family. Um, and I felt terrible. I have a very sweet cousin named Sam who made this like it's a hand carved like wooden uh like like sign that you put like above a door or something um like with the maddox family and it was you know Mm -hmm. i was hyphenating to pinner maddox um and (laughs) i just remember after the ceremony when our names were announced and he came up to me and said something like well um (laughs) Congratulations. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. So it, it was, uh, so my, my question is, is why did you, why, why did you choose? Cause it's both you and uh, your husband, correct? Yes, that's correct. So why did you guys choose to do that together? Is it yeah. just a, is it just a Mennonite thing? Is that, is that it? Uh, actually, yeah. I mean, it's not just a Mennonite thing, but it's, I feel like it's pretty common within the Mennonite community. Um, so our last name is Mass Foss. Uh, nobody knows how to spell it correctly. So we always get like Mass Foss or 
moss, fast, all the different like variations. Um, but I'm the mast and he's the foss. So yeah, so for me, I grew up Mennonite, grew up Anabaptist. Um, and I was around a lot of families who did hyphenate their name. And it was a way to still honor the, you know, the tradition and heritage of two different families rather than just being kind of like folded into one family, which, uh, you know, traditionally is the man's family. Um, so I love being a mast. I love that part of myself. I love that kind of, you know, heritage that I'm a part of. Um, and Eric liked being a foss. And so we um, didn't actually take a long time to talk about the idea of hyphenating. We we're both, you know, very excited, very on board from the beginning. Um, but yeah, but I think it's a, it's a way to honor just those two different traditions instead of just being grafted into somebody else. You know, I heard one of the critiques that I heard was that like, you know, because it's really, you know, it's, it's a, I mean, for me, it's an attack on attack on patriarchy ultimately is what it mm -hmm. is, you know, and right. marriage for a long time was, you know, a property right issue and, right. uh, you know, uh, I think the funniest critique I've heard is those people that say, you know, well, you know, your what are your your children are gonna get a hyphenated name and then what if they meet another right. hyphenated person and exactly. you have four names? I'm like, exactly. let, me let me introduce you to every Latinx person I know and they will tell exactly. you there are forty five different names that are right. attached to their name. So right. it's not, it's not unusual. No, no. Um, and they're doing fine. And it's that, you know, when we got married, it was our choice. Like legally you have the choice to say, Oh, I'd like to change my name to whatever. So we're not worried about our future kids. They can do whatever they want <laughs> as they get older. Um, yeah, but you're right. It is like, I mean, I think even when you look at the, um, the origin of MRS period, the origin of Mrs. It's from Mr. Apostrophe S. Like I love being married. I love marriage, but there's a whole history of just patriarchal nonsense that goes with all our traditions. So even at, uh, our wedding, we decided to walk down the aisle together. We decided that no one was going to like give me away. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of room for critique and all these traditions that we just assume are, you know, the norm. Yeah. So I'm in support of ending all of that, except the dowry. I would love a cash payment. Oh, yeah. Like that would yeah, be nice. I know. You know, just like, yeah. just, a, just a check. Um, but everything else, I'm totally on board with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Pro-feminist uh, pro womanist, also pro-dowry. There we go. Uh, people are complicated. Um, so yeah. another thing that we have in common is that maybe 150 years ago, I have a distant ancestor uh, that ran across the state of Oklahoma to uh, oh. grab some land. And I actually have a picture mm -hmm. of him. Uh, oh my he gosh. has a handlebar mustache that goes below his chin. And he's got eight or nine children like crawling over his body um, as uh -huh. he sits glaring at the camera. And I just look at that uh -huh. picture and go, there's, there I am. There I am. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, there's a lot of people in California that came uh, from Oklahoma in the Dust Bowl. Right. But you came later. Why did you come did. to California? Was it yeah, for it was college? post-Dust Bowl. No, yeah. so I came, um, <laughs> I came to California when I was 14 years old. So my family, um, we've lived in Oklahoma my whole life. Um, my, both of my, uh, you know, parents' families are from Oklahoma. So that was very much where we were rooted. 
but we came to California so my dad could attend the Mennonite Brethren Seminary in town here. Um, so yeah, so we uprooted when I was 14. Um, it was like the most extreme culture shock I had ever, ever experienced. Really? But I've been in, yeah, oh my gosh. So where we lived in Oklahoma was pretty rural, near Oklahoma City, but pretty rural. Um, I grew up in a pretty homogenous environment. I would say both in terms of religion and in terms of ethnicity. Um, so grew up in like very, very white environment. I remember having like, you know, one Latina friend, one black friend, one Muslim friend, but like all throughout, you know, my childhood till like 14. Um, and so coming to Fresno was just this intense, uh, I don't know, just this explosion of like, oh my gosh, there's so much else of the world out there that I just had no idea about because I was living in a very homogenous space. Um, came to Fresno. So, you know, so I grew up in a town that was like uh, 2000 people, um, very rural, very lots of farmland. Um, and then I came to Hoover high school, which is like 2000 people. So totally different experience. Wow. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting you say that, right? Because most people, you know, in the large urban areas that uh, couch uh, the Central Valley, the Bay Area, and Southern California, they tend to look at Fresno and the Central Valley as being Oklahoma to them, you know? Right. And it's just, right. it's, it's, you know, you forget that, <laughs> you know, most of the United States is pretty homogenous compared to even the most homogenous places in California. Yeah, um, so, exactly. So you see more differences than similarities? I mean, there's probably yeah. political similarities, but maybe ethnic differences. Is that a mm -hmm. fair characterization? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I was, <laughs> I was thinking too, uh, when I came to Fresno, th that's when I first actually encountered like real tacos. Uh, in Oklahoma, we have a lot of Tex-Mex. So it's a lot of, uh, you know, riffs on <laughs> actual Mexican food. So I remember like, what are these small, tiny tacos? They're flat. They're not crunchy. This is interesting. Um, yeah, but Fresno is just so wildly different. Um, and at least for me, you know, I can only speak from my own experience. I think as I've gotten older, I realized that my time as a child was like super positive, very enjoyable for me, but I had a lot of blinders on in terms of just like understanding the world around me or even understanding, you know, what happened like outside my immediate community. Um, so yeah, coming to Fresno, I remember like even my first week at Hoover, full of all these learning experiences, I met uh, an Egyptian student for the first time. And Egypt in my mind was just like, oh my gosh, a place. I would never meet anyone who actually has connections to this land that feels so far away. Um, I learned the words Hmong and Armenian, um, just had no idea about like the breadth of like the world that was out there coming from this, um, yeah, rural white context. Um, yeah. And I think that is, that is a lot of middle America in some ways. What's interesting though about Oklahoma is, I mean, we all know this, um, Oklahoma is home to tons and tons of native people. But in my experience as a child, I did not see them. I saw native names on the street signs or native, um, you know, lots of like uh, kind of nods to the native communities, but I didn't actually see native people or interact with native people, at least that I knew of. Um, so well, yeah, really interesting experience. 
So you brought it up, so I might as well jump in. So there's been uh, some recent court decisions around native lands in Oklahoma. Are you familiar with what's been going on? I am a little bit. I haven't haven't researched as much as I'd like to. Yeah. So basically, uh, you know, it was the it was the government through the court system basically announcing that, you know, this land. So uh, backtracking in Oklahoma, there was a, a court case where a, a native person had committed a crime um, and it was on Oklahoma state land, I guess you would call it, as opposed to reservation land. Mm-hmm. And so the, the jurisdiction was challenged. And what and the courts, you know, basically said something like, you know, some large percentage of Oklahoma is actually just native reservation mm-hmm. land. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm less curious about what you think about the court case and saying what you think about people in Oklahoma and how they'll respond to something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, even your story of your ancestor who ran and got the land, right? Oklahoma's like epic, fun history is boomer sooner. So even as kids in my elementary school, we would have, you know, a land run, um, uh, what's it called? Reenactment. So (laughs) we would like boomer sooner, let's go. Everyone's stoked about reenacting this really exciting thing that our ancestors did. (laughs) But what's happening here is literally stealing other people's land. So my <laughs> prediction, I think especially just because I, it's, such a, it's such a history that I don't think has been really dealt with and I don't think has been really confronted. And the legacy of particularly Oklahoman like settler colonialism is really strong. I don't see people reacting to it very positively. Um, I think especially because there is that that pride in like, um, you know, being self-made, being entrepreneurial, being pioneers and going out and doing the hard work yourself to get this land. If you're really steeped in that narrative, you're not going to be excited about re-examining that and deconstructing that. Right. Cause it challenges your image of yourself. And I think right. the, one of the more important questions I have, is it OSU or is it Pokes? Or do you even OSU. have a preference? OSU. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> if I've got I cared, some, I've got some pokes, pokes family, but we won't go there because it's uh-huh. a, touch, a touchy subject. So um, let's talk about the pink house and what the pink house is. So when I first moved here, um, our, some of our mutual connections had talked about the pink house, pink house, this pink house, that. And I was like, you know, guys, you can't just call a house a color and then like make it significant. You got to tell me what this is about. Um, so the pink house has been your, your workplace for a while. Um, so what is the pink house and what does it do? What do you do there? Yeah. So the pink house is, it is a house that is literally pink. It's like a light pink. So people think it's beige, but it's pink. Um, so yeah, the pink house is a 10 month residential discipleship program. So it's a Christian experience for young adults. Um, and so the pink house is a 10 month program focused on three things, focused on biblical community urban ministry and leadership development. So the idea is it's literally a house. Like I said, students come in and move into the house. Um, These are people, young people who are really excited to examine the intersection of faith and justice. Um, Maybe these are people who've had like Christian leadership experiences in their own churches or in their own college ministries. And they're looking to kind of hone those skills, their leadership skills, 
while also um, serving in the neighborhood and just getting kind of up close and personal with the issues of justice that they might not get up close and personal with otherwise. Um, so throughout the year, uh, the focus is, <laughs> you know, iron sharpening iron, people actually like getting to know each other deeply um, and helping each other figure out their gifts, helping each other figure out their weaknesses and growth areas. Um, and then emerging as like really well-equipped, um, thoughtful Christian leaders. So it's like a, it's like a subversive frat house. Would you? Yeah, heck yeah. That sounds great to me. Okay. So basically, you know, uh, kind of like that, a similar experience minus all the horrible things that happen in frat houses. Yeah. Try to keep Uh, it positive. Right. Yeah, so there's a lot of kind of dorm experience and that living in like really close proximity with one another, um, but all for a very missional purpose, which is the good of the neighbors around us. And yeah, just the development of our own gifts and skills. So I was a Pink House student in 2010, right after I graduated college. Um, for me, my experience was like a really diverse house. (laughs) I feel like this is the same as my moving from Oklahoma story. It's just been the thing that kind of, um, has helped me grow the most in life is encountering other cultures and examining my own whiteness in the process. Um, so in the, in my experience with the pink house as a student, I lived in an apartment with four girls and I was the only white person in that apartment. Um, and there are four apartments that comprise the pink house itself. So we had basically this whole community of, I think, 13 people that were part of this intentional cohort moving through the year together. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I, I've, it's, it's interesting, right? Cause, cause you're, cause for you, a lot of this is, you know, being in Fresno and being in the pink house, it's a lot about, you know, interacting with, you know, these different cultures and different, uh, you know, ethnic groups that maybe you didn't interact with before. Um, but I feel like, you know, the discourse in Fresno and the, the break, the ethnic breakdown in Fresno is, is very segregated. Right. So it seems like mm-hmm. to me, like, yep. like a lot of people will go a long time in Fresno. Well, and, and, you know, segregated is a, is, is a strong word because, you know, they're, I think it's more, you know, it's as much segregated ethnically as as, as socioeconomically, you know, like if you talk about yeah. Clovis versus, you know, Southwest Fresno versus whatever. Um, and so it seems yeah. like it's interesting that you're having that experience in Fresno because I, I, when I think about Fresno, I think about like mm-hmm. people apart, you know what I mean? Like, it, right. how right. does, what's, what's wrong with the, my two, are, are you just, are you, what are you doing to engage it's like it's intentional right you know you're pushing in versus versus staying in your neighborhood um so yeah that's huge yeah so like a good example of that is my husband grew up in fresno lived here his whole life but lived in northwest fresno and i don't think he ever actually got downtown to like explore the neighborhood, you know, outside of like (laughs) going to uh, one of the like um, city institutions downtown. He never went downtown with like a curious posture until he was, I think, 17 or 18. So there is this, you know, people say the tale of two cities, right? 
Um, and people have said the dividing line used to be Shields, and as a town grew, the dividing line was Shaw, and now the dividing line is Herndon. Or some people will say the dividing line is like, I don't know, what's what's up there, like Fryant or something. Um, if it's Fryant, there's a river right there, so there's not much further we can go. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe not Fryant, maybe not <laughs> Yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's, uh, that's too far north. Yeah, but I think... Um, I think naturally I am a very curious person, but really like, I feel like a broken record, but my experience of coming to Fresno from Oklahoma was just so mind blowing that it just fueled my curiosity. So I was the kid who was like, you know, 14 and 15 trying to learn guitar. I had like a guitar strapped to my back and riding my bike downtown and like taking the bus for fun and like stopping in the tower district. Like, Ooh, what is this? This is interesting. So I think there's a, there's a natural curiosity that, um, I don't know, I guess has like propelled me to do some of that exploration, but the thing that's really kept me engaged and the thing that's kept me, um, curious is the hospitality of others. And so part of that comes from the church that I attend on Rams covenant church and just like the incredible hospitality of the black community in a multi-ethnic church saying like, Hey, you are welcome here. Come be discipled by us, uh, be led by us. Um, so I think a mixture of like curiosity and hospitality is what has led my story in this direction. But those are things that, yeah, we're not encouraged to really pursue. I think, especially if we're encouraged to pursue comfort and if we're encouraged just to, you know, figure out like, where is it comfortable to be? Where do I fit? How do I stay here as much as possible? And I think I mean that like geographically and ideologically, both of those. So I, I, love, um, I love a good cult documentary. Um, and yes. lately I've been watching um, this one on HBO called The Vow. Um, oh my gosh, me too. It's so good, right? And it's so good. <laughs> I mean, I will say, I will say, you know, uh, HBO, get your shit together. There should have been three episodes, yeah. not like 400 yeah, or I however agree. many it is now. Um, yeah. But <laughs> I don't know how you're going to respond yeah. to this. I, so I, I want to talk about intentional relationships. And, <laughs> All right, let's go. Let's talk about the cults. <laughs> the vow comes to mind because, you know, I think that's what people think intentional relationships look like, which is this weird, mm -hmm. like false perky happy. And I, you know, so mm -hmm. I went to, I went to seminary at mm -hmm. Fuller um, in Pasadena and there were some of these communities and just to be completely frank, like I hated going to their barbecues oh. because, because I, I felt like, you know, it, it is a little bit like if you've ever been to like a, a timeshare, like, um, oh, like, a thankfully, no, <laughs> like you're waiting for, the, yeah. you're waiting for the tequila bottle. Right. Um, but these people are all staring at you to like make a decision to buy the timeshare. <laughs> and so like when I would go to these things, it would just, I would, it wasn't like they're trying to get me to come stay, but it just felt like, it felt like such an artificial environment. And, and for me, like, <laughs> Like a lot of the relationships that I remember or not, I remember I value were like weird accidents. Like I had a friend in college who said I should move in with him and these other guys that I didn't know. 
And I show up and they're kind of, you know, they, there is a bunch of guys that made hip hop and, um, you know, some of them were a lot older and it was a weird environment for me because I wasn't, you know, it's not really my background. Um, and they would make music till like four in the morning. Mm. And, I, and so like two weeks in, I was like, I'm moving out. I hate you guys. <laughs> I cannot sleep. I have Latin at 9 a.m. Leave me alone. Oh my gosh. Um, and and um, I pushed through and got wax earplugs and stayed there. And they become some of the best friends that I've had my whole life. Mm. And so I, I, I guess my question is, make the case to me that intentional relationships are... I don't want to say meaningful because all relationships can be meaningful, but more just mm-hmm. that. Am I just getting a false experience of it? Mm. That's a great question. I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, there is a, not a fine line. There is a line. It should be a thick line between like really authentic community and a cult, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> there yes, should be a line between those things. But I think... Uh, oh man, this is like such an interesting question. I was just talking about this the other day. So when I think about intentional community though, the thing that comes to mind is the issue of liturgy. Um, so I'm a Christian. I didn't grow up super high church, um, with lots of structure and lots of repetition in the worship service, but I've come to really appreciate the high church, um, expressions of worship. And so liturgy is the idea that you have a structure, you have this kind of like trellis uh, of meaning that then you build onto. And I think about intentional community like that or intentional relationships like that, like for real friendship, at least in my experience, it's not going to just be spontaneous and happen all the time. I have had seasons where that's like really fun and beautiful Um, But I think for relationships that go a little deeper and relationships that, um, I don't want to say last, but relationships that um, have a different kind of substance, that often can happen because of intentionality, because of the liturgy, because of repetition, because of structure, or even ritual. And all these are words that I think a lot of people just kind of cringe at inherently, like, ooh, structure, ooh, ritual, I don't want that stuff. But even if you think about the songs that we sing in kindergarten or the rhymes that we practice, like the nursery rhymes, those are all based on repetition and they're all based on um, something that just gets like drilled into your subconscious. Then that means they're there, you know? So I, I babysit a little, a little kid and um, we were watching Sesame Street songs the other day. And I remembered those Sesame Street songs from like, you know, years and years ago. Um, So I guess (laughs) the point that I'm trying to make is I think intentional relationships are often built on those kind of ritual and repetition so that they can weather the times when spontaneity or just organic kind of friendship is not actually going to work anymore. Uh, There are a few sister programs that have been connected to the Pink House. They're called Micah Project and Casa Shalom and The Hub. And so this is basically this kind of network of like Christian uh, 20-somethings 
going through this intensive year together and coming out the other side with like pretty deep friendship all around. So there's this whole crew of people who've gone through the Pink House or these sister programs that um, are really, really good at affirming one another, like really good at sharing legit encouragement. Like these are the gifts I see in you. These are the things I appreciate about you. Um, and that comes from a birthday tradition in the houses where you get affirmations. So everyone sits down and gives you all these wholesome, positive reminders about how great you are. And that actually might sound very culty, <laughs> but it's good. It can often, yeah, it can often feel really forced and structured, um, but it's a good experience. Uh, but so, so the thing that happens though is, you know, all these people learned how to do this kind of like affirmation style in this like very intentional, very structured way when they were, you know, 22 or 23. Now these people are like 30 and above and they give each other affirmations at their birthday parties. So it happened a couple years ago that we we're with a friend and all of a sudden that like affirmation circle started um, because it was everyone knew this ritual and everyone knew this tradition. And there were a couple people there at the party who uh, did not share this ritual or tradition because they didn't have the same history. But I think that's, that's one of the things that can uh, like visually look like it crosses a line into cultiness, but it's just, it's good for you. It's really good for your soul. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm also a, uh, what, what do I, what do we call it? Um, low church background person that, you know, became obsessed with what I didn't have um, growing up. And it is, you know, it's, it's true for a lot of people, right? It's like my dad grew up Catholic and then became a Baptist and kind of swung the pendulum. And so, you know, and I, but I, I think what you're pointing out is that, you know, we need tools, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, um, you know, it's like speed dating or like, you know, like a Tinder app, you know, you like some, I don't know, we don't have to go there, but like, like, you know, a, to, a tool to, you know, because sometimes... Okay facilitating human interaction is, is harder than it, uh, harder than it thinks or harder than you think it it's is. It's hard. Yeah. 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 And we don't naturally know how to relate to each other, uh, well all the time, especially when you're relating to people who are very different from you and that can be gender, that can be class, that can be anything like, so yeah, I think you're right. We need some of those tools in a toolbox that helps us relate in meaningful ways, even if they seem forced. Fresno is a super suburban place. And mm -hmm. when I think about urban places, I think about Manhattan. I think about San Francisco where I lived for a while. Um, so why, 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 I mean, most of Fresno is suburban. So why, why focus on urban ministry in like a place that's, you know, so spread out, right? Um, I mean, mm -hmm. admittedly, I mean, we could get into the definitions of what is urban, but I'm just more curious, like in a mostly suburban city with a downtown that is like, for the most part, like not really like habitated by people, during, <laughs> you know, just during the, during the non-work hours, like mm -hmm. why, why should we do urban ministry here? Yeah. So this is a, such a good question. So I don't actually love the term urban ministry, but I think that is still the term that gets used just very often. But 
here's the deal. I think what we're really talking about when we say urban or when we say urban ministry is an issue of geographical justice. Um, so InterVarsity just changed their, um, you know, uh, phrase urban programs to justice programs because the programs that, so this is InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Campus Ministry, the programs that InterVarsity offers are for the purpose of helping students understand the intersection of faith and justice. And that can happen in an urban context or a rural context or a whatever context. But what I really think, when we say urban ministry, we're talking about an issue of geographical justice. So we're talking about the places that like America does not care about pretty often. Um, people used to say, or people sometimes say the abandoned places of empire. When we're thinking about like the geography associated with what actually, um, you know, gets resources or doesn't get resources, the geography associated with who's actually, whose needs are being taken care of, who's experiencing flourishing, who's being left, what resources um, the institutions have to offer. So I really think when we say urban ministry, we're saying this is a focus on justice. And you can see, or you can do justice ministry anywhere, but it's in the urban areas of Fresno where you see injustice and brokenness just like really up close when you're more proximate to poverty, when you're more proximate to the ways that <laughs> uh, urban areas have been failed. Um, and I think what's really important to think about with Fresno too, even though Fresno is a very suburban city, we're very, very spread out. It's not friendly for walking. It's not friendly for biking. You almost have to have a car to get around Fresno, right? So, you know, looking from the outside, we're a very suburban place. But I, I hear what you're saying. So urban is not the right term. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, we could have yeah. a whole conversation about, you know, white kids going into, you know, ethically diverse neighborhoods or countries and saving people. And that's a whole different podcast. Um, and, and for, you we know, sure so could. I, I, um, right. I was a part of InterVarsity when I was in college. Um, and for the most part, you mm -hmm. know, I, I, I've enjoyed, I enjoyed things. I enjoyed the emphasis on, uh, kind of multi multicultural like music. So we had we were I was in the one at San Francisco State. So it was a, one of the more diverse chapters. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had like music in Tagalog. We had uh, two Egyptian brothers from Cairo that would play drums during the music. We had you know it was just it was a cool experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I think. I, and, you know, I, I don't know how much you want to talk about this as someone that used to work with InterVarsity, and so maybe you can yeah. speak more openly. I, I feel like, you know, InterVarsity is one of those organizations that um, tried to be like in the middle, you know, and tried not to take, you know, public stands on one thing or another um, and tried to like hide behind like multi-ethnicity stuff. Um, as a way to not take political stands on certain issues that I cared about. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what ultimately was like, okay, I'm out. Um, and I, you know, I, maybe, maybe you can just talk about your experience working mm -hmm. with the university. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I have a deep love for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So I worked for InterVarsity for four years and just finished in uh, June of this year. So just a few months ago. So, but the thing is, <laughs> with every... Um, with every expression of American Christianity that is steeped in evangelicalism, there is always, always, always a temptation to uphold the status quo. There is always a temptation to corroborate with and collaborate with um, the forces around us that are just not good for people. And those forces include patriarchy, colonialism, white supremacy, all the bad ones. I think in my experience, evangelicalism is just, um, yeah, it's just so proximate to all that nonsense that you have to work really, really hard to offer something different um, in the midst of that kind of experience. So my favorite experiences within InterVarsity are the ones that have uh, intentionally critiqued all the rest of that nonsense and intentionally helped um, young students deconstruct their experience of evangelical Christianity. And I'm, and I mean white evangelical Christianity when I say that, you know? Um, so I have, yeah, like I said, deep love for university. I think some areas of university are, um, I think they're still struggling to see the problem with like the connection to all those uh, ways that evangelicalism has been damaging, but there are pockets of university that are incredibly fruitful and incredibly, honestly, like prophetic in their critique of um, the dominant evangelical kind of culture. Um, so those are the voices within university that I've learned from. Those are the people whose like feet I've tried to sit at. Um, that's what we tried to do at the Pink House, me and my co-director, Sarah Miku. That's the kind of environment that we tried to foster at the Pink House. Um, not, you know, not wanting to um, replicate the, the sins of evangelicalism and actually like pursue something different. But I think you're right that like, you know, multiculturalism, uh, that's even, <laughs> that's like, we feel that's like an old fashioned word, you know, diversity. We feel that's an old fashioned word. You like feel it in your bones. Um, those are not sufficient answers for the kind of like deep digging and unearthing and like excavation that needs to be done. And as a response to all the ways that evangelical Christianity has been a damaging force. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I, what I would always say is that, you know, whenever I'd have an issue with university or something and I would take it up with my chapter leader, I'd say, well, at least we're not campus crusade. Um, you know, could be worse. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that, I think that focusing on that multi-ethnic, uh, equation can facilitate, again, back to these attention relationships can facilitate, the kinds of conversations that do need to happen. Um, and my experience was, you know, I, I didn't feel like it. I, I, I'm more referencing kind of like it as an organization, less on the kind of local politics of university. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, for me, I, I think that, I don't know, the older I get, the more I feel that, you know, I, life is too short to, you know, not take a stand on things. 
and it's it's unpopular you can get you in trouble um you know but i think at the end of the day you know i'd rather lose a bunch of friends and say what i believe than you know be the guy that never takes a stand on anything and I, it just reminds me because when i was when i lived in san francisco i went to this church uh, it was a presbyterian church uh, called city church um and it's a very it was a wonderful place um and the minister there decided, you know, I'm not going to talk about what specific issue it is because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get into that now. But um, the minister took a political stand on a, a issue that's been in contention within the evangelical community. Uh, I don't know if I, he would call himself that, mm-hmm. you know, within the within most mainline churches as well. Um, yeah. And for a while, he was uh, this church was seen as kind of like an interesting development within the kind of RCA, you know, culture. Um, but then when he took that stand, a lot of people just said, we're done with you. Audi, right? And it, I'm sure lost him friends. I'm sure lost him colleagues. I'm sure it lost him financially because of people leaving that church. But um, I don't think he regrets it. And I think yeah. that's, I guess that's my only pushback is that like, yes, I think, what InterVarsity is doing is great, but I think, you know, the hard thing and, and is, is to, is to, is to actually say dangerous things, you know, mm-hmm. things that might get oh, you in trouble. Oh, absolutely. So. Yeah. And then you look at the history of the church, like those are our heroes, are the people who've said dangerous things and often paid with their life or paid with their vocation or paid with their you know, reputation. Like <laughs> I even think about like, I think those are our heroes and just like pop narratives too. We love the outsiders. We love the, yeah, people who are willing to take a stand. But when it comes to us individually, and then I think on a larger scale, when it comes to institutions, it feels like there's so much at stake that we're afraid to do it. But that is, it's just nonsense. <laughs> it's yeah. not helpful and it's not actually, um, I don't think it is um, rising to the occasion that we have in our lineage of like people saying dangerous things and taking risks. So yeah, I, I feel you. I'm, I'm lamenting right now just all the ways that, um, yeah, I mean, I think as a Christian, like a lot of ways that my community and my like <laughs> the people I'm part of the American church uh, are getting it wrong. Yeah. Well, on that note of saying dangerous things, um, maybe can you share a few dangerous things that you've read recently? Um, I like to end with talking about books. If there's anything that you're reading currently or books uh, that you'd recommend, it doesn't necessarily have to be about cults or intentional communities. It can be about anything really uh, that you are finding cool. helpful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, yeah, so I've been in vocational ministry for four years and I've read a lot of nonfiction, but since I have been out of that job and in a kind of, you know, sabbatical figuring it out season, um, I started to read a lot of fiction and I just finished the book with Love craft country by Matt Ruff. And it was excellent. Really, really good. So it was like supernatural horror, uh, mixed with, um, yeah, just the experience of, uh, the Jim Crow era and like the horrors that are inherent in 
that kind of, <laughs> it's geographical justice like we talked about before. Um, so just read that. It's a show on HBO now. I haven't seen it yet. I heard it's good. Um, I have so been, I also been waiting to watch that. Do you think I should? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I guess you don't know, but do you, oh, should I start with a book first and then go? I always start with a book first. That is my like, that doesn't ruin it for you because I feel like possible. the reverse is the true, more true with people. Like they read the book first and they're like, oh, this, this show is shit. It doesn't, gets all the details wrong. And, you know, I just feel like people, you know, the, it's, it's rare that adaptation meets the book standard, I guess. Is what for I'm sure. But if you approach it as like, oh, these are two different narratives. They're trying to do two different things. It's a, I think it's a very fun experience. Um, yeah, you can't be too picky if you want to read a book and then go watch the adaptation. <laughs> you have Correct. to have some grace in there. Correct. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you talking with us. And uh, did I just use like the plural us? I've just been yeah, watching a lot of. Right. I've been watching a lot of. Um, watching like uh, some kind of like British royal show where they. Which one, where one is it? It's. It's the one, it's about Queen Victoria. And um, I, you know, I don't know enough about Victorian England. I, I feel like that period is just, I mean, cause it's like one of the most important periods in British history when they like, you know, speaking of colonialism, you know, mm -hmm. like that's when right. that really got cracking. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't know much about it anyway. So she speaks with the, the Royal we. So maybe that's why I'm doing that right now. I'm, I'm in, I'm, you know, it's imbued in me. So yep. anyway, yep. Um, I appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, stay safe. And, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to have some intentional community this week. I'm going to, I'm going to facilitate Excellent. some interactions. <laughs> yeah. Just try it out. See what happens. See if it feels like a cult. Then there you, you can go. stop. <laughs> and then one, one day you and I, we will both finish the vow. Oh, I know. Now, and then we can we can check in uh, in right. ten years when it's over. So exactly, yeah. Whenever it's over. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. Cool. Fresno's best.